0: Welcome to Shank Talks Bonhoeffer, and that's just what I do in this podcast, is talk about my earthly hero, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the young World War II-era Lutheran pastor, moral philosopher, Christian ethicist, academic uh, resistance strategist, and ultimately, I would classify him as a martyr, because he died at the hands of the Nazis, specifically at the order of Adolf Hitler, uh, because of his most deeply held convictions, his moral principles, and his religious beliefs, because they were tied inseparably together. Bonhoeffer's greatest focus in life was the question of the will of God for him, And living in obedience to Jesus Christ. These were uh, the organizing elements of his existence. And so they propelled him in a certain direction, which ultimately led to uh, his death, his murder. I think that classifies you as a martyr. Some people uh, don't see him that way. Uh, Happy to hear those comments, but. In my mind, he most convincingly is a martyr uh, in that sense. So uh, today, in this special Christmas New Year edition of Shank Talks Bonhoeffer, we're going to actually hear from Bonhoeffer himself. Now, I don't mean to falsely set you up. There are no recordings of Bonhoeffer's voice. I so wish there were... (laughs) Uh, I've actually hunted thinking maybe someone somewhere will discover one. I'm not aware of any. If you are, please tell me where they can be found. But we will hear from Bonhoeffer through the words that he left us in one of the most important pieces of writing that he would produce in his lifetime. Not a book, but a letter. This one is, A circular letter that was sent out to his circle of most uh, intimate uh, contacts, most intimate uh, interlocutors, the people that uh, he was the closest to. They were his companions through the entirety of his struggle to preserve the integrity of the church in Germany and its witness of the gospel, uh, his struggle to preserve and protect what was best in German culture, uh, and in his struggle to contain and ultimately defeat the utterly corrupt, morally bankrupt mass-murdering, tyrannical regime of Adolf Hitler called the Third Reich, uh, which was populated by sycophants of the Nazi Party, national socialists. And here were were people who had put everything at risk, some a little more than others— uh, some who had paid more dearly than others, but all of them had exposed themselves to great jeopardy by joining in this mission with Bonhoeffer. And he would write them in December of 1942 with a special purpose in mind. And it's really not a very happy one because by this time, Bunhoffer was certainly aware And many of the recipients of his letter would have been aware that more than likely their struggle, their attempt to reclaim what was right and good and moral was, in fact, at this point, very likely a lost cause and that it would be in the end unsuccessful and in this kind of pastoral letter, in fact, uh, it really is a pastoral epistle of sorts, Bonhoeffer is preparing the recipients of his letter for this eventuality, this great loss. But he's preparing them spiritually, emotionally, maybe even uh, physically in the sense that they must now be prepared for dire consequences uh, to uh, the failure of their mission. And he doesn't want them to be caught un, uh, unprepared, uh, off guard, if you will, by this eventuality. And in this letter, uh, we will hear his voice, the depth of of his concern, uh, he is a man of great passion. He loves the people that he's writing to, as he loves his country and loves uh, Germany, uh, the German people. Uh, of course, he loves the Church, even the unfaithful, heretical, apostate Church. He loves, he loves the people uh, that God has given to him. Uh, for good or for bad. And it's all conveyed in this letter. In fact, I would argue that this may be the 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 deepest, most profound, most poignant piece of writing that Bonhoeffer produced in his entire life. And we're going to hear it as I read it to you, uninterrupted, without commentary, From beginning to end, it's going to be a longer podcast for that reason. Usually I trim these to about 20 minutes. Not going to be the case here, but I will take some breathers and give you an opportunity there to pause if you want to or even stop uh, playing uh, the recording and then come back to it later. I'll kind of give you some logical places to do that. But uh, I'm going to read to you uh, this letter which we know as 10 years after. And I hope you'll give it the mental focus that it really demands, requires, and deserves. Take the time necessary to listen to it deeply, to reflect on it prayerfully, and think about the implications of the words in our own time. In fact, I'm convinced that this letter of Bonhoeffer's, uh, written in 1942, is highly relevant to the times that we're living in now. That while the circumstances are not identical, there are enough elements to what we're living through now that it makes the implications of his words. Very, very relevant, useful, um, very timely, as a matter of fact. Timely for us. So, uh, whatever amount of time you can give to this, I hope you will. And maybe even as you listen, think of yourself as one of the original recipients of this letter. Put yourself in their Uh, In their shoes, listening to this man you love, who has uh, been with you through thick and thin, uh, who has invested so much in you and you in him, and think about what is at risk here and the price he has paid. How would you process these words? Think about that as I read to you the English translation of Ten Years After. Uh, This was published in Letters and Papers from Prison, a book of the enlarged edition, edited by Eberhard Betka. It was a touchstone book published by Simon & Schuster, and I hope after hearing this letter read, uh, you'll go ahead and get a copy of letters and papers from prison yourself and read all of them. But for now, just one letter. It's December 1942. And Bonhoeffer writes ten years after a reflection on New Year's 1942. Ten years is a long time in anyone's life. As time is the most valuable thing that we have, because it is the most irrevocable, the thought of any lost time troubles us whenever we look back. Time lost is time in which we have failed to live a full human life, gain experience, learn, create, enjoy, and suffer. It is time that has not been filled up, but left empty. These last years have certainly not been like that. Our losses have been great and immeasurable, but time has not been lost. It is true that the knowledge and experience that were gained, and of which one did not become conscious till later, are only abstractions of reality, Of life actually lived. But just as the capacity to forget is a gift of grace, so memory, the recalling of lessons we have learnt, is also part of responsible living. In the following pages, I should like to try to give some account of what we have experienced and learnt in common during these years, not personal experiences or anything systematically arranged, or arguments and theories, but conclusions reached more or less in common by a circle of like-minded people and related to the business of human life, put down, one after the other, the only connection between them being of concrete experience. There is nothing new about them, for they were known long before, but it has been given to us to reach them anew by first-hand experience. One cannot write about these things without a constant sense of gratitude for the fellowship and spirit and community of life that have been proved and preserved throughout these years. No ground under our feet. One may ask whether there have ever before in human history been people with so little ground under their feet, people to whom every available alternative seemed equally intolerable, repugnant, and futile, who looked beyond all these existing alternatives for the source of their strength so entirely in the past or in the future, and who yet— without being dreamers, were able to await the success of their cause so quietly and confidently. Or perhaps, one should rather ask whether the responsible-thinking people of any generation that stood at a turning point in history did not feel much as we do, simply because something new was emerging that could not yet be seen in the existing alternatives. Who Stands Fast? The great masquerade of evil has played havoc with all our ethical concepts. For evil to appear disguised as light, charity, historical necessity, or social justice is quite bewildering to anyone brought up on our traditional ethical concepts while for the Christian who bases his life on the Bible, it merely confirms the fundamental wickedness of evil. The reasonable people's failure is obvious. With the best intentions and a naive lack of realism, they think that with a little reason, they can bend back into position the framework that has got out of joint. In their lack of vision, They want to do justice to all sides, and so the conflicting forces wear them down with nothing achieved. Disappointed by the world's unreasonableness, they see themselves condemned to ineffectiveness. They step aside in resignation or collapse before the stronger party. Still more pathetic is the total collapse of moral fanaticism. The fanatic thinks that his single-minded principles qualify him to do battle with the powers of evil. But like a bull, he rushes at the red cloak instead of the person who is holding it. He exhausts himself and is beaten. He gets entangled in non-essentials and falls into the trap set by cleverer people. Then there is the man with a conscience, who fights single-handed against heavy odds and situations that call for a decision. But the scale of the conflicts in which he has to choose, with no advice or support except for his own conscience, tears him to pieces. Evil approaches him in so many respectable and seductive disguises that his conscience becomes nervous and vacillating till at last he contents himself with a salved instead of a clear conscience, so that he lies to his own conscience in order to avoid despair. For a man whose only support is his conscience can never realize that a bad conscience may be stronger and more wholesome than a deluded one. From the perplexingly large number of possible decisions, the way of duty seems to be the sure way out. Here, what is commanded is accepted as what is most certain, and the responsibility for it rests on the commander, not on the person commanded. But no one who confines himself to the limits of duty ever goes so far as to venture on his sole responsibility to act in the only way that makes it possible to score a direct hit on evil and defeat it. The man of duty will in the end have to do his duty by the devil too. As to the man who asserts his complete freedom to stand foursquare to the world, who values the necessary deed more highly than an unspoilt conscience or reputation— who is ready to sacrifice a barren principle for a fruitful compromise, or the barren wisdom of a middle course for a fruitful radicalism, let him beware, lest his freedom should bring him down. He will assent to what is bad so as to ward off something worse, and in doing so he will no longer be able to realize that the worse, which he wants to avoid, might be the better. Here we have the raw material of tragedy. Here and there people flee from public altercation into the sanctuary of private virtuousness. But anyone who does this must shut his mouth and his eyes to the injustice around him. Only at the cost of self-deception can he keep himself pure from the contamination arising from responsible action. In spite of all that he does, what he leaves undone will rob him of his peace of mind. He will either go to pieces because of his disquiet, or become the most hypocritical of Pharisees. Who stands fast? Only the man whose final standard is not his reason, his principles, his conscience, his freedom, or his virtue, but who is ready to sacrifice all this when he is called to obedient and responsible action in faith and in an exclusive allegiance to God. The responsible man who tries to make his whole life an answer to the question and call of God Where are these responsible people civil courage what lies behind the complaint about the dearth of civil courage in recent years we have seen a great deal of bravery and self-sacrifice but civil courage hardly anywhere even among ourselves To attribute this simply to personal cowardice would be too facile a psychology. Its background is quite different. In a long history, we Germans have had to learn the need for and the strength of obedience. In the subordination of all personal wishes and ideas to the tasks to which we have been called, we have seen the meaning and the greatness of our lives. We have looked upwards, not in servile fear, but in free trust, seeing in our tasks a call and in our call a vocation. This readiness to follow a command from above, rather than our own private opinions and wishes, was a sign of legitimate self-distrust. Who would deny that in obedience, in their task and calling, the Germans have again and again shown the utmost bravery and self-sacrifice? But the German has kept his freedom, and what nation has talked more passionately of freedom than the Germans, from Luther to the idealist philosophers, by seeking deliverance from self-will through service to the community? Calling and freedom were to him two sides of the same thing. But in this he misjudged the world he did not realize that his submissiveness and self-sacrifice could be exploited for evil ends. When that happened, the exercise of the calling itself became questionable, and all the moral principles of the German were bound to totter. The fact could not be escaped that the German still lacked something fundamental— He could not see the need for free and responsible action, even in opposition to his task and his calling. In its place, there appeared on the one hand an irresponsible lack of scruple, and on the other a self-tormenting punctiliousness that never led to action. Civil courage, in fact— can grow only out of the free responsibility of free men. Only now are the Germans beginning to discover the meaning of free responsibility. It depends on a God who demands responsible action in a bold venture of faith and who promises forgiveness and consolation to the man who becomes a sinner in that venture. of success although it is certainly not true that success justifies an evil deed and shady means it is impossible to regard success as something that is ethically quite neutral the fact is that historical success creates a basis for the continuance of life and it is still a moot point whether it is ethically more responsible to take the field like a Don Quixote against a new age, or to admit one's defeat, accept the new age, and agree to serve it. In the last resort, success makes history, and the ruler of history repeatedly brings good out of evil over the heads of the history-makers. Simply to ignore the ethical significance of success is a short-circuit created by dogmatists who think unhistorically and irresponsibly. And it is good for us sometimes to be compelled to grapple seriously with the ethical problem of success. As long as goodness is successful, we can afford the luxury of regarding it as having no ethical significance. It is when success is achieved by evil means that the problem arises. In the face of such a situation, we find that it cannot be adequately dealt with, either by theoretical dogmatic armchair criticism, which means a refusal to face the facts, or by opportunism, which means giving up the struggle and surrendering to success. We will not and must not be either outraged critics or opportunists, but must take our share of responsibility for molding of history in every situation and at every moment, whether we are the victors or the vanquished. One who will not allow any occurrence whatever to deprive him of his responsibility for the course of history, because he knows that it has been laid on him by God, will thereafter achieve a more fruitful relation to the events of history than that of the barren criticism and equally barren opportunism. To talk of going down fighting, like heroes, in the face of certain defeat, is not really heroic at all, but merely a refusal to face the future. The ultimate question for a responsible man to ask is not how he is to extricate himself heroically from the affair, but how the coming generation is to live. It is only from this question, with its responsibility towards history, that fruitful solutions can come, even if, for the time being, they are very humiliating. In short, it is much easier to see a thing through from the point of view of abstract principle than from that of concrete responsibility. The rising generation will always instinctively discern which of these we make the basis of our actions, for it is their own future that is at stake. Of Folly Folly is a more dangerous enemy to the good than evil. One can protect against evil. It can be unmasked and, if need be, prevented by force. Evil always carries the seeds of its own destruction, as it makes people, at the very least, uncomfortable. Against folly we have no defense. Neither protests nor force can touch it. Reasoning is no use. Facts that contradict personal prejudices can simply be disbelieved. Indeed, the fool can counter by criticizing them, and if they are undeniable, they can just be pushed aside as trivial exceptions. So the fool, as distinct from the scoundrel, is completely self-satisfied. In fact, he can easily become dangerous, as it does not take much to make him aggressive. A fool must therefore be treated more cautiously than a scoundrel. We shall never again try to convince a fool by reason, for it is both useless and dangerous. If we are to deal adequately with folly, we must try to understand its nature. This much is certain, that it is a moral rather than an intellectual defect. There are people who are mentally agile, but foolish, and people who are mentally slow, but very far from foolish, a discovery that we make to our surprise as a result of particular situations. We thus get the impression that folly is likely to be not a congenital defect, but one that is acquired in certain circumstances where people make fools of themselves or allow others to make fools of them. We notice further that this defect is less common in the unsociable and solitary than in individuals or groups that are inclined or condemned to sociability. It seems, then, that folly is a sociological rather than a psychological problem. And that it is a special form of the operation of historical circumstances on people, a psychological byproduct of definite external factors. If we look more closely, we will see that any violent display of power, whether political or religious, produces an outburst of folly in a large part of mankind. Indeed, This seems actually to be a psychological and sociological law. The power of some needs the folly of the others. It is not that certain human capacities, intellectual capacities, for instance, become stunted or destroyed, but rather that the upsurge of power makes such an overwhelming impression that men are deprived of their independent judgment and, more or less unconsciously, give up trying to assess the new state of affairs for themselves. The fact that the fool is often stubborn must not mislead us into thinking that he is independent. One feels, in fact, when talking to him, that one is dealing not with the man himself, but with slogans, catchwords, and the like, which have taken hold of him. He is under a spell, he is blinded, His very nature is being misused and exploited. Having thus become a passive instrument, the fool will be capable of any evil and at the same time incapable of seeing that it is evil. Here lies the danger of a diabolical exploitation that can do irreparable damage to human beings. But at this point it is quite clear, too, that folly can be overcome, not by instruction, but only by an act of liberation. And so we have come to terms with the fact that in the great majority of cases inward liberation must be preceded by outward liberation, and that until that has taken place we may as well abandon all attempts to convince the fool. In this state of affairs, we have to realize why it is no use our trying to find out what the people really think, and why the question is so superfluous for the man who thinks and acts responsibly, but always given these particular circumstances. The Bible's words that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Psalm 111, 10 tell us that a person's inward liberation to live a responsible life before God is the only real cure for folly. But there is some consolation in these thoughts on folly. They in no way justify us in thinking that most people are fools in all circumstances. What will really matter is whether those in power expect more from people's folly than from their wisdom and independence of mind. Contempt for Humanity There is a very real danger of our drifting into an attitude of contempt for humanity. We know quite well that we have no right to do so, and that it would lead us into the most sterile relation to our fellow men. The following thoughts may keep us from such a temptation. It means that we at once fall into the worst blunders of our opponents. The man who despises another will never be able to make anything of him. Nothing that we despise in the other man is entirely absent from ourselves. We often expect from others more than we are willing to do ourselves. Why have we hitherto thought so intemperately about man and his frailty and temptability. We must learn to regard people less in the light of what they do or omit to do, and more in the light of what they suffer. The only profitable relationship to others, and especially to our weaker brethren, is one of love, and that means the will to hold fellowship with them. God Himself did not despise humanity, but became man for men's sake. Imminent Righteousness It is one of the most surprising experiences, but at the same time one of the most incontrovertible, that evil, often in a surprisingly short time, proves its own folly and defeats its own object. That does not mean that punishment follows hard on the heels of every evil action, but it does mean that deliberate transgression of the divine law in the supposed interests of worldly self-preservation has exactly the opposite effect. We learn this from our own experience, and we can interpret it in various ways at least it seems possible to infer with certainty that in social life there are laws more powerful than anything that may claim to dominate them, and that it is therefore not only wrong, but unwise to disregard them. We can understand from this why Aristotelian Thomist ethics made wisdom one of the cardinal virtues. Wisdom and folly are not ethically indifferent as neo-Protestant motive ethics would have it. In the fullness of the concrete situation and the possibilities which it offers, the wise man at the same time recognizes the impassable limits that are set to all action by the permanent laws of human social life. And in this knowledge, the wise man acts well and the good man wisely. It is true that all historically important action is constantly overstepping the limits set by these laws. But it makes all the difference whether such overstepping of the appointed limits is regarded in principle as the superseding of them, as is therefore given out to be a law of a special kind, or whether the overstepping is deliberately regarded as a fault which is perhaps unavoidable justified only if the law and the limit are re-established and respected as soon as possible. It is not necessarily hypocrisy if the declared aim of political action is the restoration of the law and not mere self-preservation. The world is, in fact, so ordered that a basic respect for ultimate laws in human life is also the best means of self-preservation, and that these laws may be broken only on the odd occasion in case of brief necessity, whereas anyone who turns necessity into a principle, and in so doing establishes a law of his own alongside them, is inevitably bound sooner or later to suffer retribution." The imminent righteousness of history rewards and punishes only men's deeds, but the eternal righteousness of God tries and judges their hearts. A few articles of faith on the sovereignty of God in history. I believe that God can and will bring good out of evil even out of the greatest evil. For that purpose, He needs men who make the best use of everything. I believe that God will give us all the strength we need to help us to resist in all time of distress. But He never gives it in advance, lest we should rely on ourselves and not on Him alone. A faith such as this should allay all our fears for the future. I believe that even our mistakes and shortcomings are turned to good account, and that it is no harder for God to deal with them than with our supposedly good deeds. I believe that God is no timeless fate, but that He waits for and answers sincere prayers, and responsible actions. Confidence There is hardly one of us who has not known what it is to be betrayed. The figure of Judas, which we used to find so difficult to understand, is now fairly familiar to us. The air that we breathe is so polluted by mistrust that it almost chokes us. But where we have broken through the lair of mistrust, we have been able to discover a confidence hitherto undreamed of. Where we trust, we have learnt to put our very lives into the hands of others. In the face of all the different interpretations that have been put on our lives and actions, we have learnt to trust unreservedly. We now know that only such confidence which is always a venture, though a glad and positive venture, enables us really to live and work. We know that it is most reprehensible to sow and encourage mistrust, and that our duty is rather to foster and strengthen confidence wherever we can. Trust will always be one of the greatest, rarest, and happiest blessings of our life in community though it can emerge only on the dark background of a necessary mistrust. We have learnt never to trust a scoundrel an inch, but to give ourselves to the trustworthy without reserve. The Sense of Quality Unless we have the courage to fight for a revival of wholesome reserve between man and man, we shall perish in an anarchy of human values. The impudent contempt for such reserve is the mark of a rabble, just as inward uncertainty, haggling and cringing for a favor of insolent people, and lowering oneself to the level of the rabble are the way of becoming no better than the rabble oneself. When we forget what is due to ourselves and to others, when the feeling for human quality and the power to exercise reserve cease to exist, Chaos is at the door. When we tolerate impudence for the sake of material comforts, then we abandon our self respect, the floodgates are opened, chaos bursts the dam that we were meant to defend, and we are responsible for it all. In other times it may have been the business of Christianity to champion the equality of all men. Its business today will be to defend passionately human dignity and reserve. The misinterpretation that we are acting for our own interests and the cheap insinuation that our attitude is antisocial we shall simply have to put up with. They are the invariable protests of the rabble against decency and order. Anyone who is pliant and uncertain in this matter does not realize what is at stake. And indeed, in his case, the reproaches may well be justified. We are witnessing the leveling down of all ranks of society, and at the same time the birth of a new sense of nobility, which is binding together a circle of men from all former social classes. Nobility arises from and exists by sacrifice, courage, and a clear sense of duty to oneself and society, by expecting due regard for itself as a matter of course, and it shows an equally natural regard for others, whether they are of higher or of lower degree. We need all along the line to recover the lost sense of quality and a social order based on quality. Quality is the greatest enemy of any kind of mass leveling. Socially, it means the renunciation of all place hunting, a break with the cult of the star, an open eye both upward and downwards, especially in the choice of one's more intimate friends and pleasure in private life as well as courage to enter public life. Culturally, it means a return from the newspaper and the radio to the book, from feverish activity to unhurried leisure, from dispersion to concentration, from sensationalism to reflection, from virtuosity to art, from snobbery to modesty, from extravagance to moderation. Quantities are competitive. Qualities are complementary sympathy we must allow for the fact that most people learn wisdom only by personal experience this explains first why so few people are capable of taking precautions in advance they always fancy that they will somehow or other avoid the danger till it is too late secondly it explains their insensibility to the suffering of others sympathy grows in proportion to the fear of approaching disaster there is a good deal of excuse on ethical grounds for this attitude no one wants to meet fate head-on inward calling and strength for action are required only in the actual emergency no one is responsible for all the injustice and suffering in the world and no one wants to set himself up as the judge of the world psychologically Our lack of imagination, of sensitivity, and of mental alertness is balanced by a steady composure, an ability to go on working, and a great capacity for suffering. But from a Christian point of view, none of these excuses can obscure the fact that the most important factor, large-heartedness, is lacking. Christ kept himself from suffering till his hour had come but when it did come, he met it as a free man, seized it, and mastered it. Christ, so the scriptures tell us, bore the sufferings of all humanity in his own body as if they were his own, a thought beyond our comprehension, accepting them of his own free will. We are certainly not Christ. We are not called to redeem the world by our own deeds and sufferings, and we need not try to assume such an impossible burden. We are not lords, but instruments in the hand of the Lord of history, and we can share in other people's suffering only to a very limited degree. We are not Christ, but if we want to be Christians, we must have some share in Christ's large-heartedness, by acting with responsibility and in freedom when the hour of danger comes, and by showing a real sympathy that springs not from fear, but from the liberating and redeeming love of Christ for all who suffer. Mere waiting and looking on is not Christian behavior. The Christian is called to sympathy and action not in the first place by his own sufferings, but by the sufferings of his brethren, for whose sake Christ suffered. Of Suffering It is infinitely easier to suffer in obedience to a human command than in the freedom of one's own responsibility. It is infinitely easier to suffer with others than to suffer alone. It is infinitely easier to suffer publicly and honorably than apart and ignominiously. It is infinitely easier to suffer through staking one's life than to suffer spiritually. Christ suffered as a free man alone, apart and in ignominy, in body and spirit. And since then, many Christians have suffered with him. Present and Future. We used to think that one of the inalienable rights of man was that he should be able to plan both his professional and his private life. That is a thing of the past. The force of circumstances has brought us into a situation where we have to give up being anxious about tomorrow. Matthew six thirty four, But it makes all the difference whether we accept this willingly and in faith, as the Sermon on the Mountain intends, or under continual constraint. For most people, the compulsory abandonment of planning for the future means that they are forced back into living just for the moment, irresponsibly, frivolously, or resignedly, Some few dream longingly of better times to come and try to forget the present. We find both these courses equally impossible, and there remains for us only the very narrow way, often extremely difficult to find, of living every day as if it were our last, and yet living in faith and responsibility as though there were to be a great future. Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land, proclaims Jeremiah 32.15, in paradoxical contrast to his prophecies of woe, just before the destruction of the holy city. In it is a sign from God and a pledge of a fresh start and a great future, just when all seems bleak. Thinking and acting for the sake of the coming generation but being ready to go any day without fear or anxiety, that, in practice, is the spirit in which we are forced to live. It is not easy to be brave and keep the spirit alive, but it is imperative. Optimism It is wiser to be pessimistic. It is a way of avoiding disappointment and ridicule, And so wise people condemn optimism. The essence of optimism is not its view of the present, but the fact that it is the inspiration of life and hope when others give in. It enables a man to hold his head high when everything seems to be going wrong. It gives him strength to sustain reverses and yet to claim the future for himself instead of abandoning it to his opponent. It is true that there is a silly, cowardly kind of optimism which we must condemn. But the optimism that is the will for the future should never be despised, even if it is proved wrong a hundred times. It is health and vitality, and the sick man has no business to impugn it. There are people who regard it as frivolous, and some Christians think it impious for anyone to hope and prepare for a better earthly future. They think that the meaning of present events is chaos, disorder, and catastrophe, and in resignation or pious escapism, they surrender all responsibility for reconstruction and for future generations. It may be that the Day of Judgment will dawn tomorrow. In that case, we shall all gladly stop working for a better future, but not before. Insecurity and Death In recent years we have become increasingly familiar with the thought of death. We surprise ourselves by the calmness with which we hear of the death of one of our contemporaries. We cannot hate it as we used to, for we have discovered some good in it, and have almost come to terms with it. Fundamentally, we feel that we really belong to death already, and that every new day is a miracle. It would probably not be true to say that we welcome death, although we all know that weariness which we ought to avoid like the plague. We are too inquisitive for that, or, to put it more seriously, we should like to see something more of the meaning of our life's broken fragments. Nor do we try to romanticize death, for life is too great and too precious. Still less do we suppose that danger is the meaning of life. We are not desperate enough for that, and we know too much about the good things that life has to offer, though on the other hand, we are only too familiar with life's anxieties and with all the other destructive effects of prolonged personal insecurity. We still love life, but I do not think that death can take us by surprise now. After what we have been through during the war, we hardly dare admit that we should like death to come to us, not accidentally and suddenly through some trivial cause, but in the fullness of life and with everything at stake. It is we ourselves, and not outward circumstances, who make death what it can be a death freely and voluntarily accepted. Are we still of any use? We have been silent witnesses of evil deeds. We have been drenched by many storms. We have learnt the arts of equivocation and pretense. Experience has made us suspicious of others and kept us from being truthful and open. Intolerable conflicts have worn us down and even made us cynical. Are we still of any use? What we shall need is not geniuses or cynics or misanthropes or clever tacticians, but plain, honest, straightforward men. Will our inward power of resistance be strong enough and our honesty with ourselves remorseful enough for us to find our way back to simplicity and straightforwardness? The View from Below There remains an experience of incomparable value. We have for once learnt to see the great events of world history from below, from the perspective of the outcast, the suspects, the maltreated, the powerless, the oppressed, the reviled, in short, from the perspective of those who suffer. The important thing is that neither bitterness nor envy should have gnawed at the heart during this time, that we should have come to look with new eyes at matters great and small, sorrow and joy, strength and weakness, that our perception of generosity, humanity, justice and mercy should have become clearer, freer, less corruptible. We have to learn that personal suffering is a more effective key a more rewarding principle for exploring the world in thought and action than personal good fortune. This perspective from below must not become the partisan possession of those who are eternally dissatisfied. Rather, we must do justice to life in all its dimensions from a higher satisfaction whose foundation is beyond any talk of from below or from above. This is the way in which we may affirm it. And so ends Bonhoeffer's very, very relevant, timely, and meaningful missive to those most important to him. I think we do well to heed its wisdom in our own time. Merry Christmas to you and all yours, and a very happy and better New Year. Thanks for joining me.